that you give us that cause our hearts to believe more fully in you each and every day. As we open your word now, Lord, may we learn from you. Be our teacher, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Today we are starting a short three-part series entitled The Shorties. It's not about short people, so no one get offended, or tall people, or anyone in between. It's actually not thematically connected at all. The reason I called it The Shorties is because uh, in three of my next sermons, they're not going to be in succession because we are um, having alumni next week for SAA, and then in Three weeks after that, we are having the SAA graduation. This is our SAA season. We love our school, and we're glad to for all the various things they're doing. But uh, in these three series I'm going to be preaching, the shorties, we're going to be looking at three books that probably many of us pass by or have passed by, and if we're not specifically looking at them, it would be easy for us to pass them by. They're the books of Philemon and Jude and Obadiah. These are three books that are... In most of our Bibles, depending on the size of your Bible, but in most of our Bibles, they're only one page long. They are only one chapter long, each and every one of them. And they are books of the Bible that we don't often spend a lot of time studying. And today we are going to begin with the book of Jude. And you can open your Bibles to the book of Jude now if you like. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. I'll be in the English Standard Version, but there is an NIV in front of you, and that is fine as well. Or, or we have Wi-Fi in the room here if you like that, and if you have your tablet or your smartphone with you, you can go ahead and follow along on the Wi-Fi. But Jude is the last book right before the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation. The time and the setting and the writing of Jude's epistle are not fully known. We don't know what church it was written to or, or which group was causing the problems in the church that Jude is specifically addressing. The author of the book of Jude is believed to be uh, Jude, the brother of Jesus. This is traditionally how it is viewed. I would encourage none of you to die necessarily on that hill because there is another Jude in the Bible who was a brother of James also. But that is traditionally how we have viewed it. Jude, this Jude that, that I'm speaking of is mentioned in the book of Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. Isn't this carpenter, speaking of Jesus, isn't this Mary's son? Or isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James Joseph, Judas, and Simon, Judas being Jude, Judas short for Judas. The book of Jude is not known by most of us, but many of us have heard it referenced many times within the context of worship services. We don't hear it maybe taught about, but we hear it referenced because the very end of the book of Jude is what is known as the doxology, and you hear pastors at the end of services, they will stand up and they will Pray a blessing over their congregations, and this is what they will often pray. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior with great joy, uh, to the only God our Savior through Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. How many have heard that doxology before? We've heard that, and we've heard it prayed over us on many times. But what actually is the context of this text? These are the last words of the book of Jude, but, but what leads up? What were, these were the concluding words of what he was saying to this church, but, but what is it, the message that he's conveying that leads up to these words? What is the, the, the situation in which he's, he's discussing? 
Jude begins his book with, with actually, which actually wasn't a book, but was a letter with a, a greeting to the church. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And then he says in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude had a plan. He had a purpose in, in why he was going to send this letter to the church. His, his desire was to write to this church a letter uh, speaking to them or, or rejoicing in their common Salvation, their, 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 their joint uh, blessing from the Lord. But somewhere in the midst of his study or in his preparation for this letter or, or his, 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 his processing of putting this letter together, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of him and says, you know, that's not really what I want you to write about. That's not really what I want you to, to share with this church. If you're a preacher or if you've ever preached, you may have experienced this feeling in your own life. In fact, this week when I, on Sunday, when I read through the book of Jude, I read through the book of Jude and I, and I kind of grabbed a hold of some key verses in my mind and I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to talk about this week. And I began to process through my thinking in that way. And, I, and on Monday morning when I, was, when I went to go through some commentaries and look at some things, I was, I was reading along and I continued to think, okay, this is, this is the direction that I'm going to go. This is the, the way that my sermon is going to go. And on Wednesday when I began to, to write, began my writing process, I, I was still moving towards that theme, although now I was getting a little bit unsure. And then on Thursday morning... I was standing in the shower, and this verse kept going through my brain. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And these words were going through my mind as I was standing in the shower on Thursday morning. And by the time I completed my sermon on Thursday night, the direction from what I thought I was going to do on Sunday had gone in a whole new avenue. So I can relate to Jude here when he says, this is what I plan to say, but God had other plans and God had other purposes. He wants to, he's writing to them and he says, I, I'm writing to you because I need to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Some of your, some of your versions of your, of your scriptures will say to make a defense on behalf of the faith. Why? Verse four tells us the reason why he felt this need, why the Holy Spirit impressed upon him to contend, to make a defense for, the, for uh, the faith. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Who deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude is compelled to write to this church to encourage a defense of the faith because without notice, without notice, unbeknownst to them, over time, there have been individuals that have come into the church that believe God's grace gives them license to embrace the immoral, to embrace the immoral. 
Jude is addressing what is known as antinomianism, which is two things, basically. It's the idea that because we are saved by grace alone through faith, and this is not of our, of our work, but is uh, not a work of ours, but the work of God, so that none of us can boast. Since this is the reality, not only is the moral law not a means of salvation, those who, are, who, are, who Jude is addressing, those who Jude is speaking of, they would say not only is the law not a means of salvation, but the law is no longer even necessary for me to follow or for me to pay attention to. Antinomianism also means the one who rejects a socially established morality. And Jude is, in fact, addressing both these points of view. This is seen in the word in which he used, which my Bible translates sensuality. Mostly, many of your Bibles, a great deal of your Bibles, actually translate it correctly. It's the word esogia, uh, uh, and it, my Bible translates it sensuality, but a lot of your Bibles will translate that license. They will translate that license. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into license, license to do as they please, license to do as they see as best. The reason my Bible, the English Standard Version and some of your Bibles as well, will translate this sensuality or lasciviousness is because this word, is used within the scriptures according to the theological dictionary of the New Testament. This word is used most often as license in regard to the physical sphere, primarily in regards to sexual excess or sexual behavior. In other words, what, what Jude is saying is, is there's, there's some that, that are taking license, not necessarily just in their hearts, but they're taking license in their actions and how they are living their life. The theological dictionary expands on this word. The word speaks of those who not only take license privately, but also openly because they have come to the place. They have come to the place where they no longer even see their sin as sin. They've come to the place where they no longer even see their sin as sin. I've heard in my life of working in ministry, I've heard people at times say or rather be kind of condemning of people in which they say, look at, look at them, they're just flaunting their sin. You ever heard that before? Look at them, they're just flaunting their sin before this. This word is not speaking of someone that wants to flaunt their sin, and the truth is I believe probably most people don't actually want to flaunt their sin. Most of us try to hide our sins, and probably most of us actually bury our sins, which isn't always a good thing. And it makes it even worse sometimes. But they're speaking of not people who flaunt their sin. Asogia is speaking of those that are open about their sin, not to flaunt it, but simply because they have become unaware. They have become unaware that sin is sin. The issue that Jude is addressing, the, the, the heart of Jude's critique, that he's calling on the church to contend against, is immorality an immoral life. But not just people that struggle with immorality specifically, but people who actually no longer see immorality as immorality. People who no longer see the sins that they commit as even sins any longer. How do people get to where they no longer see sin as sin? How, do, how does humanity get to this place? There is an incredibly strong temptation for all of us in humanity to find a value system that will endorse the kind of behavior or lifestyle we've chosen. 
There's this, this temptation that we all have. We could look at someone and say, oh yeah, I know that person. That person, they're, they're choosing to ignore that their sin is sin because they want to live the way they are. But the truth is, is all of us have this temptation in us. In his final novel, Resurrection, Leo, Tol- Leo Tolstoy describes just such a situation. There was a nobleman by the name of Nikhil, I can't even say the name. I tried to say it in first service. I'm not even gonna try to slaughter it. I asked some of my, uh, some of my Eastern European friends to come and tell me how to actually pronounce his name. No one, no one helped me out. So we're just gonna go with Nick, okay? That's a name I can say. Uh, a story about this guy named Nick that Tolstoy is writing about who has seduced a young woman by the name of Maslova. And through his seduction, through his seduction and his entrance into this life, she has now entered into a life of prostitution. Nick now wants to redeem this woman. He feels, he feels guilty from this life. He feels responsible for leading her into this life. But he's surprised when he goes to Maslova, when, he's, when he goes to, to bring her out of this life, to reform her, he's surprised that she shuns his attempts for reform. And he's also even more stunned when she not only expresses no shame for, when when she not only shuns his attempts for reform, but she also expresses no shame for choosing the oldest profession known to man. Here's a woman that is walking down this path and he, he wants to reform her. Surely you understand this is evil. And she says, I don't see any shame in it. I don't see any problem with it. Tolstoy then comments on this thinking. He says, and yet it could not be otherwise. Everybody, in order to be able to act, has to consider his occupation or his action important and good. Therefore, in whatever position a person is, he is certain to form such a view of the life of men in general as will make his occupation seem important and even good. It is usually imagined that a thief, a murderer, a spy, a prostitute, acknowledging his or her profession to be evil is ashamed of it. But the contrary is true. People whom fate and their sin mistakes have placed in a certain position, however false that position may be, form a view of life in general which makes their position seem good and admissible. In order to keep up their view of life, these people instinctively keep to the circle of those who share their views of life and their own place in it. This surprises us where the persons concerned are thieves bragging about their dexterity, prostitutes vaunting their depravity, or murderers boasting of their cruelty. But it surprises us only because the circle, the atmosphere in which these people live, is limited and chiefly because we are outside of it. It is not just though, folks, the murderers or the prostitutes or the thieves that create these views. In our society, we've begun to create these positions on a number of things, as well as these individuals. We do this almost as a way of self-preservation. Positions that have long stood as, 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 as issues of sin no longer seem to be sin. There's now some gray area in it within our society and even within church, whether it's around human sexuality, which maybe many would immediately condemn, or adultery, which many would also condemn, although now there's some that would say, well, but there's some gray there. If you saw the marriage that they were in, premarital sex, which it seems far fewer, or extramarital sex, which far fewer would condemn. 
Why? Because, because a view of life has been formed in general which makes their position seem almost good or even at the very least admissible. Lust, which even fewer seem to condemn now which because maybe it is a universal struggle at one point or another in most people's lives. And thus for self-preservation there's been this, this view formed in which, in which maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe if it's not good, at least it's admissible. Let me give you a real-life example of this. Barna released a study just last year in regards to the epidemic of pornography. And in this study, self-reported Christians, they went to churches and studied self-reported Christians, 64% of Christian men view pornography, it said, at least monthly. 18% of Christian women viewed pornography at least monthly. These are challenging stats, but, but in light of what I'm sharing today, I want you to hear this. Here's the interesting thing. Of those 64% of Christian men that are struggling with pornography, 34%, 34% don't think or are not sure that they should view it any less. That they should view it any less. And of the 18% of Christian women, by the way, the fastest growing group of pornography users is young women in our society. But 18% of Christian women, 8% don't think or are not sure that they need to view porn less. Those 34% of men and 18% of women are individuals that, that have formed a position in order to make their way of living seem, if not good, at least admissible. We're all in danger of this, of no longer seeing our sin as actual sin. Jude is speaking to a church because all of us, Jude is speaking to, to the church then, but he's also speaking to the church now because all of us can be dangerously close to being asogia, open about our sin because we no longer are aware that sin is sin. Whether it's human sexuality, sexual identification, rationalized adultery, premarital fornication, or lust. And Jude is writing to the church, appealing that they contend against such falsehoods of the flesh. That they contend against such falsehoods of the flesh. At this point, we would think, well, now Jude is going to go into his methods of defending the faith. But he doesn't. Rather, Jude, in verses 5 through 16 in, in verses 5 through 16, he elaborates on verse 4. He illustrates how throughout history, people have gone down this path of antinomianism. And he uses various different groups and, and looks at various different groups who have said, who, who as he said in verse 4, perverted the grace of God. He looks at various groups who have received the grace and the blessings of God from the children of Israel to the angels that were in heaven and eventually fell to, to, the, to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah to to. To, uh, and, and beyond, people who, who throughout the history received blessing and grace from God but perverted that grace and, and, and rather than appreciating that grace and living in accordance to God's will, instead came to the place where they no longer saw sin as sin. And Jude mentions these groups. And then he says this phrase in verse five. Now I want to remind you, or some of your Bibles will say, I want you to remember I want to remind you, or I want you to remember, Jude is not here explaining some deep theological thought. He says, I'm telling you today what you already know. You know these stories. You know what happened to these people. But I want to remind you. And he begins to give old, these Old Testament examples, and he begins to remind the people 
of, of what ultimately happens if you choose to go down this path of putting a circle around yourself where your sins become justified and you no longer see sin as sin. And he gives warning. He says, they became engulfed in sexual immorality. They blaspheme. And he gives, these are the descriptions of, of what will, they will go through if they go down this path. They blaspheme what they don't understand. They follow after, after false prophets. They are destroyed by following their own instincts like unreasoning animals rather than the truths of God. It sounds a lot like the beginning of the book of Romans. They are grumblers and malcontents. They again follow their sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters. They show favoritism in order to have personal gain. This is not Jude's defense. Remember, Jude said to the church, I'm writing to you so that you will contend, so that you will defend the faith, so that you will protect the church from this immorality that is creeping in. But this is not Jude's defense of the faith or method for defending the faith. Jude then reminds them and us now that none of what we see in the world or creeping into the church surprise us. Jude 17 and 18. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Jude here is telling this church, we should not be surprised when we see this immorality even within our own church because because we've known throughout history that in the last days, these types of things would go on, even within the church. And then verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Verse 19 seems to be setting up for us our defense method against immorality. And I want to pause here for just a moment. I picked earlier on sexual sin simply because it seems to be the way the text is going in the writing of Jude. But can I say there are more areas where we as well can be asolgia, open, uh, open about our sin because we no longer see it as sin. There is definitely a great problem with sexual sin in modern Christianity, and there are obviously was at this time as well. There is an openness to sexual immorality within our culture that, 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 to a degree that has not been seen since the time, it seems, of the Greeks or the Romans. But I like what Tolstoy wrote after that passage, that, we, that paragraph that we read earlier. Remember, he said, this surprises us, in speaking of the murderers or the prostitutes or, or the immoral, this surprises us only because the circle, the atmosphere in which these people live is limited and we are outside of it. And here is the new part. He says, but can we not observe the same phenomenon when the rich boast of their wealth, which is in a way robbery? The commanders in the army pride themselves on victories, which can be murder. And those in high places vaunt their power, which could be violence. We do not see the perversion in the views of life held by these people only because the circle formed by them is more extensive and we ourselves are moving inside of it. And brothers and sisters, can we not observe the same phenomenon in ourselves? That we can see the sins of others and see how they are blind to their own sins, but maybe we don't see our own because we've also created circles in which we are moving in as well. I mentioned earlier some of the, the aspects of, of, of sexuality, and many of us are ready to condemn those 
who have, have, have chosen no longer to cease uh, the change of human sexuality as a sin. Yet we forget to read Ezekiel chapter thir- uh, 16, verses 49 and 50, in which the Bible tells us, Behold, this was the guilt. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. We must defend the faith, not only against the the, the sins that we may condemn in others, but we must defend the faith against our own asogia, our own blindness to our pride and to our abundance in which we don't help others. We must defend the faith against our own spiritual arrogance, whether personally or corporately. We must defend the faith against our abundance as well. Many of these we may now not see even as sin because we have been running in those circles for so long. But now Jude goes on into his method. He goes on into his method of how to defend the faith. How to defend the faith against the the immorality that has crept into the church. How to defend the faith against those who, who who are openly embracing things that the Bible clearly calls sin, and yet they don't see it as sin. And here, folk, is where God opened my eyes on Thursday morning. Here's where God opened my eyes on Thursday morning. I read this short book on, on Sunday afternoon, and I saw a defense of faith. I saw that text, and I keyed in on that text in which Jude says, I write to you, I appeal to you that you will contend for the faith, that you will defend the faith. And I thought then, I, I, I keyed in on that text. And then the next text, which says, those who have come in and, and perverted grace by thinking that they can practice any type of sinful acts. And I thought about that, those texts, and I began to think, okay, what can I say about defending the faith? And I began to think about how we need to be more bold against sin and how we need to speak out more strongly against sin and how we need to call sin by its right name publicly and we need to, to preach about it more. Maybe we need to think even more about, about the disciplinary actions within, of sinners within church and yada, 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 yada. And then in the shower on Thursday morning, I couldn't get that text out of my head. But you, beloved, Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. And I realized this is Jude's statement of defense for the faith. Brothers and sisters, I realize the best defense of the faith is not to condemn another's sin, is not to go and fight for some law in the federal government to be, so that some sin can be done away with. The best defense is that we make sure that me, myself, and I am daily walking with Jesus. The best defense against the immorality of society and even that which has crept into the world is not condemnation. It is personal reflection that I am walking with my Savior day by day. 
Jude said, I found it necessary to write to you, to appeal to you, to defend the faith, to contend for the faith, to, 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 to keep protection of these sins that have come into the church by those who are taking advantage of grace and think that anything, they have license to do anything. Here's what will happen to those people who continue on that way. They'll fall into sexual immorality. They'll blaspheme. They'll no longer believe the truth. Now here is what you are going to do about it, Christians. Here is what you are going to do. You're going to take care of yourself and make sure that you're building yourself up in the faith, in the most holy faith. This, by Jude, is not an appeal of a loner thing in which we go home and we, we say, how can I make myself stronger? But rather here it's echoing the words of the book of Hebrews. Do not give up the habit of meeting together. He hears when he says, you yourselves, build, up, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. What he's saying is, is, is as believers, come together with other believers so that you can hold one another accountable, so that you can support one another, so that you can, you can encourage one another in this most holy faith. And then he says, pray, be praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit here is not speaking of necessarily a charismatic thing, but but that our prayers are, are stimulated by, they're guided by, they're infused by the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can be teaching me daily how I need to be more like him. Keep yourselves in God's love. This does not mean that you save yourself. This is not talking about, about post-fall perfectionism. This is, that is God's work and God alone, but it's about me daily. Keeping my, myself in God's love is about me daily surrendering to the work of Jesus Christ. And by the way, even the surrendering, we're told, some wonderful little inspired writings, is the work of, the, of God and the Holy Spirit. It says, then we are to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to eternal life. That we are to wait for the mercies. In other, I don't think it's talking about here about the mercy of salvation, but ultimately that, that joy of the second coming, the joy of, of his return. To me, this is speaking of our need to continue to focus on the second coming of Jesus. When I got back uh, your surveys, which many of you did, over 200 of you did, and I thank you for that, over and over again, and I said, what are some themes you'd like to hear about in, in our preaching in the upcoming year? Over and over again, a theme that kept coming out is we'd like to hear more about the second coming. Amen to that. Because Jude tells us as we focus on that, as we keep our eyes on that, that is a defense of the faith that we stay focused on that. It's also important to remember that we stay focused on that. Because when we focus on the sins or the immorality of another, a lot of times we not only begin to hate that sin, but sometimes we begin to hate that person. And you can't help anybody that you hate. And so we focus on Jesus. We keep our eyes focused on Jesus and his soon coming. And then finally, part of our defense of the faith is to keep focused on Jesus' second coming. And then finally, it says there in verse 20, uh, 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Verse 22, and then listen to these words, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Again, this text kind of summarizes that the greatest offense against those who have become asolgia, those who, who are open about their sins simply because they have become unaware that it is sin, that we are to show mercy towards them. Show mercy towards those who doubt. Snatch those we can out of the fire, but on those that dispute, still show mercy. With caution so that we don't embrace their sin, 
but still show mercy. I went into this sermon and I got locked into a text at the beginning of the sermon thinking that it was all about condemning sin, primarily in others, to protect the church. And I come out of this book realizing the greatest defense is for me personally, is for you personally, to every day spend time and surrender to Jesus. Who would have thunk it? The greatest defense of the Christian faith is not condemnation, shunning, criticism, government laws, positioning, protesting, discipline. Who would have thunk that the greatest defense of the Christian faith is you and me acting like Jesus. And then the doxology comes. How do we do this? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority both now and forevermore. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you that the defense of your truth is not argumentative. We thank you that the defense of your truth is not about casting people out. We thank you that the defense of your truth is not about shunning. The defense the greatest defense of your truth is for myself and my brothers and sisters to not give up meeting together, to pray every day for the Holy Spirit to show us how we can be more like you, to surrender daily to your work on our behalf, to stay focused on your soon return, and above all, to show mercy to everyone, even those that dispute us and no longer see sin as sin. Lord, we thank you. Help us defend your faith by living like you. In your name we pray, amen.